You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Amanda Ellison is the Executive Director of the Wilson Research Institute for Health and Wellbeing at Durham University in the UK. She's the author of Getting Your Head Around Your Brain. Her new book is Splitting the Inside Story on Headaches. Thank you for joining me, Amanda. Absolute pleasure, Rick. Lovely to be here. You know, what? the first thing you point out about headaches is that we need pain. Pain is information. It's our body's way of telling us something is wrong. Mm. Isn't it funny? It really, really is. It stops us from overdoing it, protects us. You know, if you hurt your leg on the football field, you leave the field, right? You don't keep playing because, you know, you <laughs> do yourself some serious injury or something. So why do we ignore headache? Why do we try? get on with it all the time. Headache is an early warning signal that something is not quite right in our head. And what lives in our head? Our brain. And that's the most important organ that we have. Why do we not listen? You know, you you also point out that if the brain blood vessels dilate for any reason, that blood is poisonous to the brain. So explain, uh, flesh that out for us a bit. Sure. Pardon, pardon the pun there, Rick. Yeah. (laughs) So what we have is we have a widening of blood vessels in the head. It brings extra blood to our brain. We need it. You know, when we're thinking, we need extra blood, depending on which parts of our brain are active. And that's really important. So widening blood vessels, constricting blood vessels, it's all part of the normal service of what's going on inside of our skulls. But if they widen beyond comfortable limits, then that could become a problem because blood is toxic to brain tissue. It will kill it on contact. So if a blood vessel bursts or there's leakage from the blood vessel, then that can be have a really serious consequence. And that's what we all know as being a hemorrhage or stroke, a type of, of stroke. So, you know, we, we really do need that early warning signal to say, no, no, things aren't quite right. The blood vessels are dilating beyond what they're comfortable doing. And if that happens over a long period of time, then that can can lead to consequences like leakage or blockage or, or, or bursting of those blood vessels. And that's not a good thing. And so that's why we feel pain in the head. It's to tell us to just step away from whatever's causing that pain. Because headaches, while they're often just uh, annoying, they can indicate very serious problems. Absolutely. If pain comes on very, very quickly, if it's the worst headache you've ever had, if it comes on during the night but wakes you up, if you've had it after a contact sport episode or something like that, you've got to get it checked out. Never, ever, ever ignore it. Obviously, with lots and lots of us, headache becomes chronic, particularly in, in, in sinus headache or in tension headache or migraine. Oftentimes we're quite used to it. We know we recognize the signs. But at the onset of these kinds of episodes, if you've never had them before, you've got to get yourself checked out. Again, your brain is the most important organ in your body. We don't mess around with that. Now, you when we hear the word headache, the first thing we think of is pills. 
And one of the things you point out is that though paracetamol, it, it works very well, we still don't know exactly how it works. And I think that's one of the interesting aspects of this book is you take us to the edges of science where we know and what we don't know, and you indicate what we don't know, which is nice to know. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, I always like to know what I don't know because it keeps me in a job. You know, mm. this is this is why I can be a neuroscientist. So long as there are things that we don't know, I'm okay. I'll probably get employed somewhere, which is a good thing. I think one of the really interesting things, and, and writing a book like this, it's, it's a real gift to be able to put together all the different aspects of what we do know. So looking at the biochemistry of things and looking at the behavioral side of things and looking at what's happening in your body and putting it all together, wrapped up in the environment in which we live and then saying, right, OK, what do we know and what do we not know? And as you mentioned, you know, paracetamol, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really good case in point because because where that works is at the level of the inflammation, it will constrict the blood vessels again. It will reduce any inf inflammation comes from that widening of the blood vessels. It comes from the immune response and, and paracetamol will, will dial that back. But also we know that it will work very well in conjunction with caffeine for example, which is why they're often packaged up in the same pill, because caffeine is a vasoconstrictor too. We also know that with a variety of sodas, particularly the ones that have caffeine in it, they, that will actually, you won't have to take as much paracetamol if you take them with, with Coca-Cola, for example. So that's that's all good to know, things that aren't really generally known. That's all good to know. But there's another thing that we know about paracetamol and that actually it can change your social awareness of other people's pain, which is a really interesting aspect. And, and we need to take this into account in that it has it has an effect on how it is we view the world around us, which we never knew before. And so it means that actually people who are on huge amounts of paracetamol for chronic pain, for example, maybe something like arthritis or something like that, they will have different perceptions of other people's pain in that their perception of other people's pain and their empathy towards that pain will be lowered. So we need to start to think about prescribing medications, not just in terms of what's happening in our body, but how it is it's affecting our brain and how it is we look at the world around us, the social side of those kinds of prescriptions. That's so fascinating. You know, one of the things, too, you talked about is that codeine is useless to 10% of the people who are taking it. <laughs> Indeed, they may as well be eating M&Ms. And in fact, they might get more out of the M&Ms because there's a nice bit of chocolate in there. So yeah, absolutely, yes, we don't, 10% of people don't have the enzyme that lives inside your liver that breaks codeine down into morphine. Because morphine, actually, you can't take it orally very easily. It's, it's an intravenous drug generally when you're, when you're in hospital. It's a drug that acts in the at the level of the brain so in contrast to paracetamol which acts at the level of the inflammation this actually switches your brain off to the pain signal so it's an opioid and um codeine is broken down into morphine which is the opioid that we all know of it's it's actually the basis of heroin actually as an opioid um psychoactive drug so 
Um, but it doesn't work on 10% of us because we don't have the enzyme in, in our liver to break that down. Another actual, um, <laughs> I use the term lightly, but another drug that, that um, we use with this, this kind of precursor, we call it, um, system is tryptophan. Now, chocolate is packed with tryptophan and tryptophan is broken down by enzymes in our body into serotonin and serotonin is the happy hormone so that gives us an emotional boost but also it's a powerful painkiller inside inside the brain it blocks the pain signal actually reaching your brain which is wonderful and also it's involved in the the hormone balance that's important to stave off headaches you know too obviously the one substance on earth that keeps everybody alive is water and yeah. you talk about the importance of staying hydrated and the most common headache is dehydration headache something i did not know mm, it is and the reason why it is is because you know life just saps the water out of us we don't realize you know those those um people who are avid watchers of star trek will know that that human beings on star trek are are described as bags of mostly water, which, you know, may take disputes over. But there we are. I take any description, really, particularly on a Friday night. But that's just me. I've always liked that description as well. (laughs) Now, one of the things I think you kind of the themes of this book um, involves uh, evolution, which is why do we get headaches still? And you talk about this, especially with regards to migraines. But talk about the the evolutionary aspect of of headaches. How do they keep the species alive? Well, headaches are really important, as we've talked about, right? Mm -hmm. See, it's early warning signal for something actually that may be um, dangerous to your brain and so it's really important to have a quite a fine tuning that that will allow us to to be able to um realize when something is on the horizon that actually might not be um good for us and we all know that we all have different pain thresholds um you know some people can stub their toe and think that this is fine some people can stub their toe and be on their knees crying and screaming for whatever deity they believe in you know it's it's just it's totally different all of our different pain thresholds and and actually that's an evolutionary issue too is how sensitive we are to pain around us so and there's a big gender balance here as to what the difference is between how women experience pain and how men experience pain. Obviously, women go through childbirth uh, and, and men, the worst thing that they can do is stand on a block of Lego in their bare feet in the middle of the night. You know, so there's balance there. And there's and there's a huge background. We joke about this. However, it's not really it's not really funny. And you can scratch the surface of the, the hormonal milieu. That's the difference between a man and a woman. And you can say, right, what's different about those? And how does that actually affect what's happening inside those bodies? And how how is it that women can deal with childbirth, whereas men can't stand on a piece of Lego in the middle of the night? You know, it's that 
suspicious, but actually there's a whole science behind it. When it comes to migraine in particular, I find it really, really curious as to why it is we have it at all. You know, what's its purpose? It's got to have a purpose. So what we actually need to think about actually is what actually triggers off migraine. And and one one particular issue that um is really very, very clear, is that lots and lots of people who experience migraines have really reactive areas of the brain that have to do with vision. So it's at the back of your head. It's called the occipital cortex. And that area of their brain is incredibly reactive. It's got a very low threshold for activity. So if, for example, you were to show somebody, anybody in the population, a picture that had lots and lots of horizontal lines, vertical lines, lines of different orientations, they'd look at it and go, yeah, yeah. Whereas if you were to give that to a migrainer, they would probably have a visual motor response that would resemble a thump. So they would not be happy about this because to them, that would be activating every single nerve cell in the back of their head. And it sets off this neurological event that is is the marker of migraine and it looks to them as if all the lines are moving and, and and you can't really focus on anything they have really high visual acuity so they can see lights when they're slightly out of phase they can see movement in amongst horizontal lines that other people might not be able to recognize and from our evolutionary past that might have been really really important if we're trying to survive in the wilds for example to see a tiger in amongst moving grasses, for example, that kind of visual acuity might have been incredibly important. Less important now, but it certainly was in the past. You know, um, to take this back to a a less unpleasant headache, uh, talk about the brain freeze and Maya and Janus and and their study into ice cream headaches and the, the idea that this isn't the only uh, enjoyable way to get a headache, you can also get surfer's skull. This is absolutely... Anytime you introduce a really cold stimulus into your mouth, otherwise known as your buccal cavity, which is great if you're trying to annoy somebody and you tell them to shut their buccal cavity because they don't quite know what to say to that. So the, the, when you have anything like ice cream or smoothies or cold water from the North Sea, um anything like that will actually cause the palate to get really, really cold. And that's the roof of your mouth. And what happens then is that that signal is taken up into your brain through the nerve that serves your face and part of your head. It's called the trigeminal nerve. Now, because the trigeminal nerve, as its name suggests, has three branches. So one down towards your mouth, one around your nose area, and one towards your eye area and forehead area takes it all up into the same nerve tract. So your brain can't actually tell quite where that signal came from. So that's why we experience that brain freeze headache in our foreheads usually. And that's where we that's where we clutch with the heel of our hands when when we're experiencing brain freeze. Maya Kazarowski um, did an experiment with her class. She was in in uh, middle school at the time. She's only 12. And what she did was she got half of her class to eat ice cream in a leisurely manner and half of her class to gobble it as quickly as they could. And what she showed was that in the half of the class that had to gobble the ice cream as quickly as they could, they had higher incidence of ice cream headache. So gobbling your ice cream 
chugging your smoothie, having loads of water coming into your mouth while you're surfing, all of that will cause this this shock to your to your mouth and your palate. Your brain thinks that this is the end of days and it thinks, oh no, hold on a minute. Everything's really, really cold. And your brain can't work when it's cold. Any coroner will tell you, you're not dead until you're cold, sober and dead. Sorry, warm, sober and dead. Very, very important. Um, many a dead body, dead body inverted commas, has woken up in the morgue as it warmed up. So, so, so your brain actually shuts down in the cold. So what it wants to do is send a big rush of blood to the head. And that's, again, part of that throbbing that you feel in your temple because your head has experienced this big rush of blood. You feel it as pain because your your blood vessels are widening beyond the, their, their safe parameters. And you feel it and, it. and it goes away really quickly. It lasts about 30 seconds. It's very entertaining to watch. But um, the reason why it goes away is because you swallow what's in your mouth. You can put your tongue to the roof of your mouth and 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 change the differential of the temperature. You can put your thumb in your mouth. Um, but what's most entertaining is when you tell children that patting their bellies is going to make it go away. And of course, it doesn't. It's just entertainment for you. <laughs> you know, one of the more common effects or causes of headaches is sinuses. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I like about your book is you write all around the subject so that I'm a person who doesn't get headaches, but I have sinus issues, breathing issues, as we say. And when you explain the whole structure of our face and how sinuses work, I think that was really fascinating. So talk about, as a science writer, knowing when to you know break a little bit out of your mold which you do all the time with the humor, but just to, to take your subject to just a little extra added icing on the cake, as it were. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, it's, it's when, when I'm writing a book like this, I, I find out just as much as the reader, really, because I'm in a position where I'm unshackled from 500 words or 5,000 words that I might be allowed to write a scientific article with. And actually, what I'm trying to do is tell you a story And I'm trying to talk to you about how relevant it is for you. And in order to make it relevant to you, I want to engage you in the story and and actually help you see yourself in it. And oftentimes I will sit and I'll talk about um, the word snot, for example. And I'll think, gosh, I wonder where we got the word snot from. And I'll go find out. And then I think it's so fascinating. I want to tell you all about it. Let me tell you. I mean, there were I had a lot more words that didn't make it into the book because my editor was like, really? Really? <laughs> and of course, as a scientist and as an interdisciplinarian and for somebody who's, whose mind is so open, her brain almost falls out on a regular basis. I find it all interesting. I think the phrase you're looking for Rick, is I am academically promiscuous. I am interested in lots and lots and lots of different things. And I like to tell people about it. I I think it's really entertaining. And I think that the story aspect is also really true and important because, you know, in a a science fiction novel, we want to, we're reading a novel, we want to read the story. But often what the author has to do is to give a bunch of information and they have this... uh, you know, there's a term for that. They call it the info dump. So you're reading along an exciting story and all of a sudden, well, 
as professor of this, I've got to tell you that. And then there's you just, the story just comes to a grinding halt. I think you do a great job of using facts to enhance the story and tell and enlarge the story. Now, and with the science, I have to uh, mention the Asinonasal Outcomes Test, SNOT 22. <laughs> I didn't make that up. Nothing I've written down is made up. Some things you just couldn't make up. And this was fascinating to me. When you have sinus problems, as you know, Rick, people think you can just get on with it, right? That, that, you know, well, you know, fine, okay, you've got a little bit of breathlessness here, you find it hard to breathe through your nose, you've got a post-nasal drip, you have to cough a lot, you know, it feels like you have indigestion all the time. Oh, get on with it, you're all right. You know, people don't actually realise how draining that is. It's effortful, effortful, mm-hmm. effortful off. And you're, you become a slave to the weather channel because you want to know what the pollen count is going to be tomorrow the next day, the week after that. And you plan your life around it. And it can be very, very effortful. Well, um, the SNOT 22, and it's called the SNOT 20, the Sinonasal Outcomes Test, there's 22 questions in it, actually addresses all of those kinds of issues. So not just the biological, okay, do you cough more often? Can you breathe through your nose? Do you do you experience headaches? Do you experience droopy eyes? All of those kinds of things to do with these air-filled cavities that are in your face. But also, you know, how, how, how exhausting is this to you? How does this impact on your life? And it gives you a measure of, of how the impact of your sinus problems on your life. So that, and it works for patients as well as clinicians because it's important that patients feel in everything, really, not just in terms of pain, but that they feel hurt and that they feel like there's justification for how it is that they're feeling. And even worse than that, that they feel that there is justification in the effect that they feel it has on their lives. And that gives them agency over what's going on with them. It's not about, and headache is 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 very much like this. Headache is a phenomenon, right? It's a phenomenological thing. It's an experience. And it's not just about something that is happening to you. You are in this story. And how are you going to change how it is you live your life or how it is you feel about this in order to change that story? Now, let's get back to the migraine headache. Um, Versus a a sinus headache, what are the differences between the two? And between that, that and the stress headache? Mm, It's really interesting because it used to be, and not too long ago, you know, we're talking about 20 years ago, people used to think all headaches were the same. Um, We have all suffered under the yoke of anytime anybody has a headache, they don't have any old headache, they have a migraine headache. And, you know, as a a time-served neuroscientist, I unfortunately walk into that bear pit and go, no, you don't have a migraine, you have a tension headache. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because actually they're caused by different things. And even though, as we'll talk about, oftentimes the pain comes from exactly the same phenomenon inside of your head, because they're caused by different things, you wouldn't treat them the same. It's very important to diagnose the correct type of headache. All headache ultimately comes from that dilation of blood vessels. It's the same in migraine as it is in tension, as it is in sinus headaches. But as we know, the causes are different. With migraine, there is a very clear neurological beginning 
to it, which isn't relevant in in the tension or the sinus headache. They're just vascular headaches. Whereas in migraine headache, there is a very clear neurological event. So it starts off with excitation at the back of your head that spreads across your brain. It's called cortical spreading depolarization. Depolarization is just activity. Really big excitatory wave. And that's followed by a long lasting wave of no activity at all, right? And what happens because of this is that you actually get vasoconstriction. So less blood is coming to the brain. And of course that means you can't flush out all of the neurotransmitters and all of the ions that are in the wrong place. Everything's in the wrong place. And then you get a rebound rush of blood to the head because the brain thinks, oh, I'm not getting enough oxygen. Oh, alarm bells. And it, and your automatic systems just sends much more blood to the brain than it actually needs. And we experience that part as pain. But the migraine has probably been going on for two days already before you get there, which is phenomenally remarkable. And that's very. It's really interesting, too. When you uh, talk about the, the, the stress headaches, uh, you do. You mentioned how children report headaches, and I thought that was a really interesting part of the story, and an important part of the story that's not—it's uh, underreported. I absolutely agree. There isn't enough that is done with children and headaches. There really isn't. Um, and I think it's because people think that children are very poor at, at they're very poor witnesses of what's going on. You know, they're very fallible. You know, they, they are very susceptible to how it is you ask the questions. So, you know, if you say, how fast was the car going when it smashed into the wall, as opposed to how far, how fast was the car going when it bumped into the wall, they will be completely influenced by that. this. They're not, they're not unique in this, lots of adults do this too it's it's just poor eyewitness testimony really and it's very much couched in how it is that you ask the question but i had a group of children that i was speaking to about various health issues and i just slipped in a question about headache and i was really surprised these kids were seven right and i thought that their their description of headache would be poor but actually it wasn't they they could they could describe what headache felt like they could distinguish between bodily pain and headache and then i asked them you know what do they think gave them a headache and i really didn't expect them to to link it with emotional causes i expected them because i had observed them for a while i expected them to link it to the bangs in the head that lots of them had had from little johnny who was running around with the copy book just whacking everybody five minutes before our interview i expected that but that's not what i got i got them connecting their physical well-being with an emotional emotional cause and that to me was fascinating at seven years old that they were able to do that well if i feel a little bit worried if i've got a lot to do if there's a lot of noise in the classroom and i don't feel quite right never use the word stress so much you know but but what they were describing was something that was quite tense and and they linked that with the physiological effect of headache which i found fascinating you point out that stress is not an emotion but rather our body's response to threats perceived or real. And I think that that's an important thing to understand because we all think of stress as this emotion. Oh my God, I feel, I just feel so stressed because this, yeah. that, and the other thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. And what's really interesting to step on from that is that actually our brain cannot tell the difference between emotional stress and physical stress. So if you are hunched over your laptop and you're working really hard until all hours in the night and you haven't stood up in like six hours and your bladder's screaming at you, but you've ignored it all and, and you, you're on a deadline, you know, all of this because you and you're just physically in a really, really bad place. Your brain will take those signals and will say, oh, I, this body is tense, right? And it will actually interpret that as stress, yes, but it won't know the difference between that and emotional stress. And because your body is tense, you will feel emotionally stressed. So, and when you're emotionally stressed, you tend to hold yourself differently, don't you? Your, your, your body's very stiff and, and it's the fight or flight, isn't it? It's, we, we all know about it, but how our brain actually perceives that is there's no difference, one or the other. It's all the same to me. I'm still going to react in exactly the same way. You talk about the body's is and the mind are filled with feedback loops which is what you just mm. described mm. yeah absolutely and you know this is what keeps us alive don't get me wrong i think it's amazing but the thing is is that we are not aware of a lot of what's going on and this is all due to our autonomic nervous system our unconscious nervous system keeps our heart rate our respiration all of that going but also our endocrine system which is our hormone levels and all of that going on and we know that that's hugely important in the background as a trigger for migraine so and and also tension headache as well so what what this has to do with is the hypothalamus, which I'm not too proud to say is my most favorite part of the brain. I was just going to ask about <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's just wonderful. It's just like the puppet master, right? So it is the very basis of your autonomic nervous system, your fight or flight, your rest and digest, um, but also all of your endocrine system as well. It is pulling our strings and yanking our chain. If we get a craving for a particular type of food, that's your hypothalamus. You know, if you feel very needy and you think you need a hug, that's your hypothalamus. And really what your hypothalamus is trying to do is self-medicate you through the day. Now, one of the things that's often associated with headaches is alcohol. And I'd mm -hmm. like you to talk about what you call, and I love this, this phrase, the neurobiology of beer goggles <laughs> and, and also i like you at the same time tell us what is anxiety oh well okay let's talk about beer goggles first okay when you have had a few drinks the thing that alcohol does to you is it it switches off the front part of your brain which is your frontal lobe it's it's the thinking part of your brain it's the bit that helps you make good decisions. Um, it's also the bit that does, um, you know, some movement and, and speech as well. So as you get more and more inebriated, you you it's switched off. You know, you, you don't make good decisions. Making that walk to the bathroom is a little bit hairier than it would usually be. You have to really concentrate. And that's partly your cerebellum, which is at the very back of your brain as well. That's what the field feels um, sobriety test is based on because your cerebellum is the first place to go and that's the bit that does balance and things like that um but your frontal lobe is the place that that does all of your decision making that's why you sometimes make some really bad decisions when you're out drinking like 
um, oh yeah, that's a great idea. I'll have another bottle. Brilliant, bring it on. And that's a really bad decision because you've had enough. But your brain's going, yeah, that's fine, no problem, because your frontal lobe just isn't active. It's selectively depressed. But <laughs> in addition to that, you that's just, it's selectively depressed. You've got other areas of your brain that are working just fine, thank you very much. And your reptilian brain, the evolutionarily oldest part of your brain, which is, you know, where your hypothalamus is and where your amygdala is and your emotional area, your limbic system, all of those areas are, they're just fine and dandy. Okay, so the bits that, that, that determine your appetite, for example, the bits that determine um, what it is that you do if you're attracted to somebody, all of that, they're all fine, right? So you still have those more basic desires like, I need something to eat. Um, I want to have sex tonight, that kind of thing. But you have no frontal lobe to stop you from making bad decisions. So that means that when you leave the club or leave the bar and you see a food truck on the side of the street, you think, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to have everything they sell, right? Even though it looks like a really suspect food truck and, and it has absolutely no hygiene certification at all because you don't have your frontal lobe saying, no, it's a really bad idea. You find out it's a bad idea the next day. But also it means that you might actually <laughs> take things a little bit further with somebody that you ordinarily wouldn't even talk to because you have evolutionary drive to mate. And your frontal lobe isn't there to say, no, no, stop. That's a really bad idea. And that's what beer goggles is. That's people look much more attractive when you've had alcohol because um, you have selectively depressed the front of your brain. It's all to do with your neurotransmitters as well, your hormones. Um, all of those get actually um, quite send out. That's that's one of the first things that alcohol does is it inhibits the brain, it increases the inhibitory neurochemicals in your brain and it decreases the excitatory ones. But then when you have stopped drinking, maybe you've, you've slept it off overnight, those neurotransmitters, neurochemicals, they flip in the other direction. So you get less inhibition and more excitation and you feel much more anxious. Usually it happens at about four o'clock in the morning just as you're about to get up for a wee because all of this alcohol wants out and it wants out now. And that's what we call, it's the wine talking to you. It's, it's talking back. And you feel quite anxious and quite negative because all of, all of these neurotransmitters are just being falsely flipped. And because you made a few bad decisions <laughs> when you saw that taco truck. You know, yeah. um, one of the things that... I read in this book I never heard of, heard of was the cluster headache. So mm. what is it? How does it look? And this brings up the topic of heredity, genetics, and also epigenetics. Mm. Yeah, so it's a lot there. But let's let's start off by, by thinking about what a cluster headache is. Only about 1% of the population actually gets cluster headaches. But it is actually classed as being the most painful headache that there is. More men get it than women, which is in direct contrast to, to migraine, where more women get it than men. Um, but in cluster headache, it feels like somebody's trying to force your eye out from the inside. And it will present as somebody who actually looks quite anxious. They, they might be rocking. They might be banging their head off a wall because that's preferable to the pain that they're feeling from inside of their head. Um, it's, it's an incredibly painful headache. 
how it gets its name is because this headache can reoccur. And so they, you can have like maybe four or five distinct headaches in a day. And that can go on for days on end. And then it might disappear for weeks, months, years. But the, the key with cluster headaches is to be ready. The treatment for it is inhalation of pure oxygen. We can't always go around with oxygen tanks just in the, on the off chance that we might get a, a cluster headache. And um, there's also some drugs that are called triptans that work well for cluster headache, but also for migraine. They change the, the neurochemical balance in your brain that seems to underlie cluster headache, but also migraine headache as well. The hypothalamus seems to be the, the culprit in cluster headache. There's lots of little factors. So histamine, for example. Horton's histamine headache. Yeah, Horton's histamine headaches. We, we, automatically yeah, brilliant brilliant um yes Horton's histamine headache but actually it's 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 not the driver yes it's part of it and what the tryptans do the drugs um do is actually change the histamine balance inside the brain and and that's great but it's not actually the driver because if you, if you very very clearly um uh artificially interfere with the histamine balances in cluster headache sufferers it doesn't have any effect whatsoever on the instance of cluster headache but you know it's been thought that it actually has something to do with the change in the seasons that's why people always thought it was some kind of like allergic response which it's not um it's thought that maybe it might have something to do with the change in light that's outside as the seasons progress and again that that would bring that we could buy that with how it is that the the um, the hypothalamus works, but it looks like actually it has something to do with the particular neurotransmitter that's called orexin or hypocretin, mm -hmm. which actually has a real role to play in satiety and cravings as well. It turns out that people who suffer from cluster headaches are they oftentimes are very heavy smokers or they're very heavy drinkers and that's the headache became bound up in in that um both in nicotine addiction and also in terms of alcohol addiction but actually it may be that the 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 tail is wagging the dog in that kind of thinking because it's the neurotransmitter that's out of balance that's causing the behaviors of overconsumption of alcohol and heavy smoking and that's a really interesting way of looking at it because then we find out that actually the interaction between our brain and our behaviors it's not just one way it's it's a two-way street and they interact with each other in the environment in which they find themselves so yeah genetics is part of it in in cluster headaches a little part of of, of migraine headaches as well there are some familial links there but again, as you've mentioned, you know, it's not just about what genes you have and what genes are turned on or off. It's actually also got to do with the environment and how it is the environment can turn on genes that you possess that may not be turned on for your twin, for example. And that's nature nurture. You know, uh, epigenetics is so interesting to me because it's so new. I think maybe 20 years ago, people when it was first posited I, th I think that's about right because i think the first some of the first books i read about epigenetics that were when it was kind of cast as well maybe this works um mm. Mm. That, that was like 
within my memory, but now it's it's clearly you know a big part of of real of science. It's it's widely accepted, and so talk a little bit about um, epigenetics and just I think too just the the pace of science that you have experienced over your lifetime at, at Durham. I mean. We have the ability now to understand a lot more than what we used to understand. On so many different levels, Rick, I think that's what the really interesting thing is. And, and you know, for, for those who don't necessarily know what epigenetics is, it's changing the activity of genes without actually changing your genetic code. So it's switching on genes. What genes do is they make, um, they make proteins. And those proteins make hair and they make neurotransmitters and they make all sorts of things in your body. It actually just, you know, it, it, it makes us biological beings and, and, and we need them. So depending on which of your genes are active, that then will affect what which proteins you make. And so now we have this epigenetic thing where we realize, oh, hang on a minute, actually, it's the environment can actually turn on genes and also, you know, is there a hereditary aspect to that? Can we actually pass on a gene activity that isn't what we would have thought was hereditable or genetic in the old speak? Yeah, it's genetic in terms of what genetic material we have, but also it's about the activity of that genetic material that's important as well. And can that be passed on? down to your offspring and that's important because that's important for things like familial trauma for example we already know that the family and our experience of of particularly early life has huge ramifications for how it is a biological system will work we know this in terms of oxytocin which again is another very powerful painkiller inside of our body it's very important in in um, our control of headache because it's released from hugs and bonding with other people. And we know the children who have been raised in situations where they haven't been able to produce oxytocin have big problems with attachment down the line. So it's about how it is that our environment can change our genetic activity and if that can be passed on. And the key here is that genetic therapies, that's where they're working. That's the space that they're working in. But is there a way of actually being able to understand how it is that gene behavior has been altered based on behavior, based on the environment? And can we use that as a treatment as opposed to medicalizing that treatment? Now, uh, as far as the migraine headaches, um, one of the things that you described, there are four stages. There's the prodrome, aura, Mm -hmm. pain, and postdrome. Give us briefly what each of those stages are. Okay, so the, the prodrome phase is where you are feeling a little bit off right? You, it's, it's, you might be feeling a little bit down. You might um, be yawning more than usual. You might have cravings for things like chocolate. You might be feeling a little bit needy. You, you, you want some more hugs, for example. Um, but you're feeling a little bit off. Most migraines are really, really bad at recognising this. It's their families that recognise that, that they might actually be at the beginning of a migraine episode. What's actually happening at this stage is all of those behaviours that I've described, they are trying to help you rebalance your hormones and your neurochemistry. 
Okay, so you're craving chocolate, you're trying to get a shot of serotonin. You're craving hugs, you're trying to get a shot of dopamine and oxytocin and serotonin as well, if we're fair. Um, you're you're um, yawning a lot more, that changes your dopamine balance. So, you know, that that's I had so much fun breaking down all of these different behaviours and saying, what is that behaviour for? Why are we doing that? And it's all about trying to self-medicate. So what we don't know is we don't know how many headaches we've actually, pardon the expression, headed off because we've we've taken part in these kinds of behaviors because we don't know what we don't know. Right. We don't know what didn't happen. But oftentimes, of course, we don't manage to overcome this imbalance and, and we move on to the next stage. And that's the aura stage. Now, what's interesting here is that you remember I talked about that wave of excitation that happens across across the the cortex. Yeah, it's and called a brain. You say it's like a brainstorm. Brainstorm, yeah, exactly. It has more technical um, terminology, cortical spreading depolarization. But brainstorm is exactly what it is. It's very much like epilepsy in that respect, and and there are some genetic links with epilepsy. But the difference with epilepsy is that it's followed by this wave of depression this wave of relative inactivity. And that happens in all people who are suffering from migraines, whether or not they experience an aura. Now it sets off an aura. An aura is a, is a, a perceptual um, event where you might see flashy lights, or you might see squiggly lines in your visual fields. You might feel um, pins and needles over part of your body, a, a real sensory event. And some people experience this, about 20% of people who ex who experience migraine will, will feel this. And some people won't. Um, but that doesn't mean that something different is happening in both of those populations' brain. Exactly the same thing is happening. It's just a matter of how eloquent your brain is as to whether or not you experience it as a perceptual affect, which I, I find really, really interesting. Now, uh, one of the things I was wondering, are there people in the population who will experience, say, the prodrome and the aura, but not the pain and the headache itself yeah. and the postdrome. Is that uh, possible? Yeah. It is possible. It's called ocular mig migraine. And, and that's pretty much a throwback from people thinking that the aura always had a visual percept or that it always, if you didn't get the visual percept, you weren't getting aura. But now we know that actually um, it's not just about what it is that you can perceive or see. And it's a, it's an illusion. There's nothing happening there, but you're seeing these these flashy lights or, or these squiggly lines. And that's because of the activity in your brain. And if if our nerve cells are active, then they they're doing what they do. Right. And what those nerve cells do is they detect they detect lines in our visual world. And so even though those lines aren't there, it will make you think that they are there. So that's that's the basis of that illusion. Um, but equally, it can it can cause a sensory effect, a somatosensory effect like pins and needles or something like that. So it's not just about ocular. So it's a bit of a misnomer, but it is called ocular migraine. Um, it, it, they're a very interesting group of people because they're a little bit smug. <laughs> Because they go, oh, we have all the fun, but we don't have the pain until actually a member of the group that I was speaking to said, yes, but it's no fun when it happens when you're doing 70 miles an hour down a motorway, you know, on the 
lane and all of a sudden the inside lane disappears. That's not not a good thing. And, and you know, there's an element of fear that these things will happen. They do get a little bit of post-Trump, but nothing like the people who experience the pain. And th- it's really interesting as to how it is that they don't actually progress into the pain phase. What is it about their brain that that protects them from that pain phase? Because really, the effects, the neurological effects that, that you see in, in the ocular migraine phase or, or the aura phase, that's what sets up the vascular effects. Because you get lots and lots of potassium in a place where it shouldn't be outside of cells that acts directly on the blood vessels and it constricts them. And it activates pain receptors there too. And then that's where you get your rebound vasodilation from, which causes that thumping pain. There are, you cannot turn on the television set these days without seeing a number of advertisements for drugs that claim to cure migraine. And this is from, you know, uh, Botox and, and uh, warfare. And so talk about the efficacy uh, of these drugs and, and, you know, the side effects. Sometimes when you see an advertisement for a drug, the side effects sound worse than what it's attempting to cure. Absolutely agree with you there. And and sometimes, although it sounds very trite and for people who are suffering from chronic, chronic migraine, they, they, they probably want to give me a thump for saying this, but you've got to do the simple things well with migraine. You've got to understand what is causing your migraine because your treatment of migraine will be different according to that. You mentioned warfarin there. Um, that's a blood thinner. And that's that would be really important for people who are experiencing turbulent blood flow in, in their heads, which, which can trigger a migraine. But actually, um, it also may have something to do with their heart, that, that um, when all of us are born, we've got a hole in our heart because our blood just doesn't have to go to our lungs. So it's, it's redirected because your heart is a pump. We've just passed Valentine's Day. It's, it's not got anything to do with love necessarily. It, it actually um, it's just a pump. In, it's, it's your limbic system. It's your brain that does love, but that's not the story. Um, so you you might have a, a, a hole in your heart that that isn't completely closed. Usually for all of us, it closes over and it heals over. But in some people, it can just be a little bit flappy. And it, it's, you know, it doesn't cause you any trouble that you know of. But if you cough, for example, you might get unfiltered blood moving from one of your your um, chambers in your heart to the other. And it, it actually gets carried to your brain and your brain perceives that as a little blockage because it's just unfiltered blood. Your lungs are excellent at filtering blood along with your spleen, of course, as well. So. So that may be a reason that you might be on blood thinners, for example, um, or or connecting what's happening in your in your head and your experience of headaches with a cardiac issue but many people um will um be looking for a pill or a drug that's going to fix this thing but actually what we forget is that we are biological beings that change every day every day and so you might be on a long-term drug. It's the same issue with blood pressure medication and many, many other medications that the biological being that you are today is not the same as the biological being that you are tomorrow. And so the same level of drugs may be either not enough or too much. And that's where side effects live, right? 
And so you can't just say, well, here, come back and see me for a year, because that can be actually quite dangerous. If you're if your life changes, you become more stressed, you get a different job, you've got a bigger commute, COVID happens, all of these things, then actually the level of medication that you're on, it's just not as tight as it could be. Now, um, what we have coming up in now in the technology is something called deep brain stimulation, which is essentially a, like a, a, from what I read, it's a, a pacemaker for the brain in Absolutely. a sense. It yeah. reminds me of an old Michael Crichton novel called The, uh, the Terminal Man. I remember that. I remember that. It's a long time since I read that one. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's a fascinating story as to how it is we realized that the thalamus is actually the pacemaker for the entirety of the brain. And it has lots and lots of different areas that send signals to different parts of the brain. And so what you get is this 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 phenomenon called thalamocortical dysrhythmia. And it's not as complicated as it sounds because it's just that you have a really screwy rhythm of activity between the thalamus and the cortex. And then that comes back into the thalamus and is sent back out into the cortex again. Our brain works on rhythm. It is the rhythm of, of life. It's, it's how it is that our different parts of the brain talk to each other. Not just that, but the dance, the dance between them, the rhythm of the dance between them. And that tells us what it is that they're trying to say. And the thalamus is the basis of that. It's the it's the area of the brain that sends out sleep signals when when it is that we want to calm everything down and go to sleep. But sometimes you have um, signals that go to areas of the brain that aren't appropriate for what's going on, and and it might be sending sleep signals to that area. And it's not necessarily a cause of the symptomology, but it is an effect of of what's happening. So we see it a lot in Parkinson's disease, where we get a lot of atrophy of a region called the basal ganglia, for example. And that ends up changing the activity that's coming out of the thalamus and to the cortex and back again. We see it in dystonia as well. And very early doors in, in, in this kind of neurosurgery, it was thought that, you know, if you ablated or if you burned those areas of the thalamus, that better no signals than screwy signals, right? But neurosurgery was was quite poor in those days in that it wasn't very precise. You didn't know exactly what you were going to hit. Um, and you were working off generalized brain atlases that came from primates that actually had very little um very little relevance to the human brain. And so it was very hit and miss. But now we can have MRI guided technology and we can send a tiny, tiny probe in with a pacemaker. So instead of killing the brain area, what we actually do is change the activity of that brain area. And where this relates to migraine in drug intractable and in migraine that, that just cannot be fixed in any other way is that we see thalamocortical dysrhythmia in migraine, and that's what starts off sometimes the activity that we get in the cortical spreading depression or, or, or the, the, the brainstorm. And um, that may be a way of treating it. It's a new frontier of, of neurosurgery, but the interesting thing about it is, is that it works in lots and lots of disorders. So dystonia, Parkinson's disease, it's been, it's been used in OCD, it's been used in tinnitus, it's been used in migraine. It's not very widespread and it's pretty much a last resort, but it certainly has had great efficacy for Parkinson's patients in particular.
The new book by Amanda Ellison is a splitting the inside story on headaches. Thank you for joining me, Amanda. An absolute pleasure, Rick, anytime. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.